I press record, everything's running fine. I can see we're doing all right. This will go out in the end. I think we're good to go. Okay. Welcome to Boris and the Bear. This installment is called Boris and Izzy on the Jewish community in Berlin, part one. This is our very first episode. Our very first Wolves in the Bear Series 2 episode. It is, it is. This is the, um, the very first episode uh, that we're making together, mm-hmm. sitting in a uh, sort of like self-made sound booth inside of my room. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Jewish community in Berlin. So we're going to talk about uh, the Jewish community in Berlin that's been around in Berlin since the 1300s. Um, but became much more prominent after the 1600s. And we're actually going to do this episode in two parts. Now, before we dive into all of this, first this short message. As a brand new member of the podcasting label 4000 Hertz in Berlin, I'd like to join the great custom of introducing one of the many social projects that are going on in this city. So please go and check out Ready School, School of Digital Integration. Ready offers an integrated and accelerated approach to provide refugees with real-world IT skills. Ready School is making a change by not only providing refugees a valuable skill in computing and coding, but also setting them up with companies who want to hire them. Want to learn more as a hiring company or join their great program? Visit readyschool.org. That is R-E-D-I-school.org. And now... Onwards we go. People, amazing to have you with me again on this brand new Walrus and the Bear episode. And as you've probably heard before, Walrus is now officially a member of the badass podcasting label 4000 Hertz. I'm incredibly proud that they have accepted me along their ranks because they are some wicked podcast meisters. Along with joining their label, I have acquired the heroic title of podcast author, as well as being able to use their incredibly self-built studio at Moritzplatz. It also means that we'll be working closely together in making Walrus and the Bear the best it can possibly get. Needless to say, I'm truly grateful of belonging to this excellent bunch of radio producers. They're going to turn this scene upside down. Where where do we actually need to begin? Let's let's maybe start and and try to find out how how Jewish people actually ended up in the area around Berlin. Hold up, don't get all history on my ass just yet, Walrus. I mean, let me first explain a little on what we're doing here at Walrus and the Bear. Who is Walrus? First up, I am Walrus, an art historian turned radio producer, originally from Amsterdam and now a belligerent Berlin ambassador. You can find me on the streets Thursdays to Wednesdays, guiding tours through the city of the Bear. And that's what this podcast is all about, Berlin one of the most exciting cities of the 21st century. Walrus will bring you compelling stories of today's Berlin, alternated with flashbacks of its controversial history. Because it is only after you understand Berlin's central role in so many grim conflicts over the last hundred years, that you can fully appreciate the unique situation Berlin is in today. So that's what we're starting off with in this episode, a significant junction between the past and the present. We're going to talk about the Jewish community in Berlin. Over the last 25 years, Berlin has seen a big influx of Jewish people that feel attracted and at home in the city. Berlin is said to have one of the fastest growing Jewish communities in the world. 
In this two-part episode, we're going to meet some of these newcomers. We'll be asking about their motivations to live in Berlin, what attracts them to today's city. Why would they come and resettle in a country that treated them so badly in the past? And how do they interact with Berlin's troubled history? In order to fully understand the weight behind that question, we have decided to split the episode up in two parts. This part, the story you're going to listen to right now, will paint a picture of the first establishment of a Jewish community in Berlin, its continuing struggle to find a place in Berlin society, all the way up to its brutal destruction under the Nazi regime. That Berlin community ceased to exist after 1945, due to the actions of 12 years of Nazi rule. In the second part, we'll reflect on Berlin after the Holocaust and we'll be speaking with Jewish contemporaries and their motivations to live in Berlin today. Yeah, well, I think a really important part to begin with is the is the fact that there were Jewish people living here as early as the 1300s. Now, I've been constantly saying we because for this episode, Walrus is teaming up with the amazing Izan Choksi, one of my tour guiding buddies, who will help me flesh out the historic content of this episode. So there are records of Jewish people as far back as the 1300s. Back in the days, Berlin was a swampy area, an inhospitable place where famine, raids and diseases like the bubonic plague had a free hand. From 1618 till 1648, the Thirty Years' War ravages through Europe, a massive religious conflict in which almost all of the European powers are involved. When in 1648 the hostilities come to an end, Berlin will see the beginnings of a brighter future. And with that also the cautious establishment of a Jewish community in the capital. In 1671, for example, the first Jewish expellees from Austria arrived in Berlin. I mean, there's all kinds of areas where these people come from. How do they understand each other? How do they integrate? How do they go along? And also, how do they go along with their German citizens? Well, I think in the late 1600s and early 1700s, um, this is a community that is still quite separate from the rest of, of German-speaking and maybe French-speaking Berlin. Um, this is a community that mainly just speaks Yiddish um, or Hebrew if they're part of the uh, the rabbin, rabbinical, rabbininical, the rabbi community, I guess. Um, so they are a community that doesn't actually necessarily integrate um, but I would say that the, the Jewish people still do live relatively separate lives during the 1600s, speaking a very different language and often not even speaking German. So that's that's very, very common in the early 1600s to, to not speak German, but to speak Yiddish. Sounds familiar, not speaking the language of the country you're living in, you Berlin expat. Well, in the early 1700s, the idea of social integration was not yet considered desirable. Rather the opposite. Jewish people were tolerated in Berlin at best. They had limited rights and were kept out of important positions within the community. Changes in the role of the newly formed Jewish community, however, are at hand and closely connected to the life of one particular individual, a man whose grave can still be visited in the center of Berlin. So just, yeah, going back to the, um, the cemetery that we spoke about a little bit earlier on Grosser Hamburger Straße, this cemetery had been going on or had, had been a cemetery, had been a plot of land since the late 1600s. Over the course of its 300 years worth of, of history, um, about 12,000 people were buried in this cemetery. But now, if you go today, there is only one recreated freestanding uh, grave, which is the grave of a man called Moses Mendelssohn. 
Moses Mendelssohn arrived at the gates of Berlin in 1743, destined to become a rabbi. He spoke no German, just Yiddish and Hebrew, though soon found himself entangled in a vibrant city ruled by the enlightened monarch Frederick the Great. Mendelssohn realized that to be part of this Prussian kingdom was to learn the German language, and soon he became familiar with German philosophy and Prussian literature. Within 10 years, Mendelssohn had become a well-known figure among the Prussian intelligentsia, having published several important philosophical treatises and translated the Torah from Hebrew into German. Mendelssohn would become one of the most important figures of the Jewish Enlightenment. I think what's really important to mention about Mendelssohn is even though he's kind of, in, a, in many ways, an accepted um, intellectual of, of the, you know, the highest Prussian intelligentsia, he is also always very, very clear that he wants to remain Jewish. Um, and he wants to also preserve as much as he can of his society and of his community as well. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to navigate this difficult relationship between being Jewish and also at the same time being nationalistically Prussian. So, I mean, there is this sense of, you know, I, I, basically I think what we're trying to do is we're not trying to gloss over things like we're not trying to say that after Moses Mendelssohn everything was wonderful and that Jewish people lived in harmony with their Christian neighbors and didn't face any kind of anti-Semitism that's not the case I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to give a much more meaty picture of the fact that even though Jewish people are becoming much more assimilated and much more integrated into uh, Prussian society and into like general European society there is still this underlying sense of anti-Semitism of the other Mm -hmm. you know, and of people who don't quite belong. Now, we're taking a short break, only for like 30 seconds or so, don't worry. I really hope you're enjoying the show so far. It's been a blast making it, and there's a whole lot more carefully curated content after the break. But what I would love for you to do right now, what would really help me out a lot, no matter where you are, if you're on the subway, chilling at home, or walking that beautiful often pincher of yours... It's a, it's a dog breed. Check it out. I would like you to go onto iTunes and rate the show. Support the show by giving it the full five Montes. Click the link below. Go to iTunes and rate the show. I'm counting on you guys. Now, back to the program. So we have spoken about the establishment of a Jewish community in Berlin around the end of the 17th century. And one of the key figures that helped integrating that community into Prussian society, Mr. Moses Mendelssohn. We'll take a closer look into how Jewish people will become more emancipated to become actual citizens of Germany. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, what this period means and all the way up until the First World War um, and how that influenced uh, yeah, society in Berlin. So um, how are we going to do that? What are we going to talk about? Are we going to talk about capitalism? What do you think? What is, what is a good... <laughs> yeah, I um, think we can talk about capitalism. I think we can also talk about the Industrial Revolution because that mm -hmm. really changes the shape of society in many ways. Like the Industrial Revolution kind of, in a lot of ways, rips up the rule book. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of religion you practice. It doesn't matter um, what kind of background you were brought up in. What matters is if you are a useful economic tool. You know, if you are useful economically in the society and we can use you in order to make money. Like, that's what matters. And then there's the fact that in 1871, Germany gets unified. And everyone living in this newly formed Germany, also Jewish people, gets granted citizenship. 
So that immediately elevates the Jews to, at least for the law, become equals of their fellow German citizens. And that is how most Jews identify themselves by the turn of the century, as German citizens. They become an integral part of German society and are often considered to be among the avant-garde of social, economical and cultural development and progress. The 1920 is a kind of crazy, crazy time. You know, it's a time when um, monetary systems are being collapsing left, right and centre. You know, you've got the hyperinflation of 1923 that just decimates middle-class savings and sends the social sphere into a kind of chaotic, hyperactive um, situation where, you know, if you're if you're sort of wealthy in terms of your savings, you're going to lose that overnight. But if you have not a penny to your name, but if you're smart with stocks and you know where, you know, you know how to gamble correctly with the stock market, you can become a millionaire overnight. So it's this sense of like, you know, all of this kind of like social standards that have been constant for maybe decades, if not um, centuries, they are starting to be turned on their head. And this whole idea of the middle class is being questioned. Although the 20s are not often referred to as the most stable years in German's history, it is maybe precisely this turmoil in political and economical structures that provided for progressive and experimental ideas to take hold. People like Arnold Schoenberg, the inventor of atonal music and to some even known as the godfather of modern techno music, found fertile grounds for his ideas in Berlin. Or for example Max Reinhardt, a groundbreaking innovator in theatrical production, spent an important part of his life in Berlin. Now this turbulent and unstable period unfortunately also provides the Nazis with excellent election results in the late 20s and early 30s. Once again anti-Semitism sees a drastic revival, this time combined with pseudo-academic research concerning racial ideology. From 1933 onwards, Jewish people are being subjected to all sorts of assaults on human dignity. Yeah, um, and there were just just very a lot of very cruel things that were that were done. So, for instance, as soon as the Nazis come to power, I think it's in March of 1933, they pass legislation which means that if you are, you know, working for the civil service or working in any kind of public sector job, you will be sacked or, or you will be made to shut down your practice. So if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a professor, if you're working as um, a teacher or a member of the civil service, you're, you're not going to have a job anymore. Um, and then I think what's the most perverse in a way is in 1935, where they remove... German citizenship. They say if you are Jewish living in Germany, you are no longer able to have German citizenship. Now that also includes people who have converted to Christianity. Okay, it also convert it also includes people who are no longer religiously speaking Jewish. It's targeting people who are quote unquote racially Jewish. Now there's a significant amount of Jews that leave Germany when the Nazis come into power. However, there is a significant amount of Jewish people also decide to stay and decide to... Or are um, not financially able to leave. I think that's one of the biggest factors. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, why didn't they just see the writing on the wall? Why didn't they just leave? A lot of people just aren't in a financial position to do so. Bear in mind that there were a lot of punitive measures enacted by the Nazis after 1935 to basically, you know, steal all the money, like if Jewish people are trying to emigrate, they take all of their money, they take about, you know, 99% of their assets, I think something ridiculous like that, um, in order for them to get to get the visa, in order for them to leave. Also, you need a sponsor to help you get that visa because 
after your citizenship has been taken away, you're no longer just easily able to like get a visa and leave the country. You know, that's not an option for you anymore. You have to have a sponsor, you have to have a job, you have to have a company that is sponsoring you or a relative or some kind of friend who is willing to sponsor you both financially and also um, living wise as well in order to get to another country. And those, you know, sponsorships and those deals with other countries, they become increasingly less and less over the years. So it becomes harder and harder to leave. And I think there's 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 a rightfully a big panic amongst the Jewish population. I mean, life is not getting easier. And it's becoming more and more terrifying to, to be a Jewish person living in, in Germany. When the expansion of Nazi Germany drives east, plans are drawn up to eradicate the Jewish population from German and other occupied lands. In January 1942, the final solution officially sets the wheels in motion to systematically murder an entire population living in Europe. So you can see how that population that was so thriving before the Nazis came to power has been almost completely and utterly decimated. And we should also note that this is not something that is limited only to Berlin. Okay, this is something that is mimicked time and time again throughout Central and Eastern Europe. Three million Jewish Poles are murdered by the Nazis. Um, you've also got Czech Jews, Lithuanian Jews, Russian Jews as well being targeted, Jews from many, many different countries wiped off the face of the earth. All of that diversity, all of those different languages, all of that wonderful culture that came out of the Ashkenazi Jewish population of Eastern Central Europe is destroyed. And by the end of the Second World War, you have the death toll going up to around about six million Jewish people, which you don't really have any feeling towards. And therefore, it's a number that doesn't really mean anything to you. And that's why I would like at this point to sort of focus rather on the communities, um, because that's something that I think we're more able to engage with. You know, just imagine... For instance, the Berlin community that we have been talking at length about in this, this podcast, that Berlin community ceased to exist after 1945 due to the actions of 12 years of Nazi rule. And uh, it is just absolutely horrendous to, to think about, really. Um, and it's also worth noting that six million is two thirds of the pre-war Jewish population of the entirety of Europe as well. This was part one of a two-part series on the Jewish community in Berlin. Um, we have come to you know, a rather a sad end, as is almost inevitable when talking about um, the Jewish population of Berlin. Um, but what we wanted to do in part two is really engage with, again, coming back to the real essence of this podcast, which is Berlin today, um, and how the Jewish community behaves towards its history today, how it feels about the history of Berlin, why um, people want to come and live here um, because the Jewish community is in Berlin is one of the fastest Jewish communities in the entire fastest growing sorry fastest growing communities in the entire world so it's a really exciting time at the moment in Berlin to have this sense of, of rebirth and this sense of re-establishment in a way and that episode, the second part, will be brought out in June. We are working on it really hard, but in the meantime, there are some other episodes lined up for you. We'll be talking, for instance, about tattoos. We'll be speaking with refugees and we'll be making our own freaking Turner kebab. 
That's right, a dinner party this summer and you're all invited. Then a huge shout out to the history star of this episode, without whom all of this would be unthinkable, Izan Choksi. I'm incredibly grateful that she is a part of this intriguing investigation. You'll be hearing more from her in upcoming episodes. If you want to know more about her, check out her awesome Berlin blog, monumentmusing.blogspot.de. The music you've heard was especially created for this podcast by Denis Wouters and Mark Schilders. Also, a big bow to Mr. Sergio Membrias, who has been a continuing support throughout the creation of the podcast. Now, if you want to know more about the show, visit walrusandthebear.4000hertz.de. I'm super excited for the upcoming months, and I'm really, really glad that you have decided to tune in. Auf Wiederhören, see you soon and check you later. Walrus out. A 4000 Hertz Production 2016.